0: Welcome to the new episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I talk with Dr. Kevin Hector about his new book, Christianity as a Way of Life. It's a conversation about the way that our faith works its way out in our everyday practices. Things like laughing, eating together, and seeing God's image in others. It's an account of what it looks like to practice Christian faith. And we thank you, as always, for tuning in. Some years ago, I was part of a mission trip to a rural community in another country. It was a challenging experience, not least because several of our team members began to experience what I can only describe as spiritual oppression, terrifying dreams, demonic apparitions, a chilling sense of abandonment. Despite the struggle, the result for all of us was a deeper spiritual sensitivity and a more frequent impulse to pray. We returned home with a renewed conviction of God's power, presence, and activity in the world. What's more interesting though, was the experience I had upon returning home. I was surprised to find that almost every time I closed my eyelids I felt the impulse to pray return, as if it had become a matter of muscle memory, an instinctive next action. It only lasted a day or so, but it caused me to reflect on the way that our understanding of the world produces particular practices and the way that particular practices shape our experience of the world. Conviction, fuels, prayer, but prayer also shapes conviction. This dynamic of theology, practice, and perception is the subject of a new book by our guest, Kevin Hector. In the book, he explores Christianity not as a mere system of beliefs, but as a way of life, a grounded set of practices that testify to a systematic story of reality. He includes practices like baptism and communion, but also practices like laughter and lament. Sabbath-keeping, and creation care. He emphasizes that doctrines are not just things that we believe, but things we live out before God, with others, and for the world. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Kevin Hector. I'm joined now by a guest. Dr. Kevin Hector is professor of theology and philosophy of religions at the University of Chicago. He's the author of several books, but his most recent is A Systematic Theology. The title of that book is Christianity as a
1: Way of Life. Kevin, thanks for joining me on the In All Things podcast. I am really honored to be be here, and I'm grateful for the invitation, and I'm excited to have a, a discussion with you. So thanks for having me. Let's start with
0: the title of your book, which puts together these two things that uh, might not necessarily go together in some people's minds. So, Christianity as a way of life, and that suggests something practical, the sort of title that someone might pick up. And then the subtitle, a systematic theology, which doesn't always suggest something practical. Uh, Some might worry it might be a bit arcane or dry. At least for me, when I hear systematic theology, I think of a system of doctrine organized in particular categories, God, humanity, Christ, salvation, last things. But that's not the way your book systematizes things. Uh, You are interested in Christianity as a way of life, but you write, to make sense of Christianity as a way of life turns out to require a systematic theology, albeit one of an unusual sort. So I wonder if you could sort of trace how you began and approach this project of writing a systematic theology, even one that is of an unusual sort.
1: Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for the question. It's yeah, it's funny that you got to the title page and already you're like, I have questions. Uh, <laughs> I have questions. <laughs> so, it is I mean it is unusual, right? So in the in the very heart of it, I I'm talking about things like singing together and eating together and prayer and laughter and lament and and things that if theologians, systematic theologians treat those things, They're sort of on the edges, usually, not always, but almost always. And as you say, things at the center are more like finer points of Trinitarian doctrine or two natures, Christology, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I really value that kind of work, what I think of as more traditionally doctrinal work. And there is a fair bit of that in this book. But what really pushed me on this path was trying to think about two audiences. One was trying to think about, for Christians I know, the kind of folks who I go to church with, the kind of Christians who I run into all the time, I wanted to honor the kind of Christianity I saw them embodying and what it sort of meant for them to try to be a Christian. A lot of, right, like getting together and singing together with yeah. other Christians matters a lot. Um and thinking about why it matters so much, and what does does that mean, and what is it doing? It struck me as something that was pretty important. And it also struck me, and this brings me to the other audience, the other audience for this book is a university audience. That's maybe a strange combo, but I worry about institutional locations for doing theology. There are fewer and fewer of them. And there are still some universities that support theology, but I did feel like I need to think about what does it mean to, it's a kind of contextual theology. What does it mean to do theology in this context? Do it faithfully, but do it in such a way that it could be legible to my colleagues in the university as contributing to some kind of shared endeavor. And the idea of ways of life and, and formative practices And the idea that there could be wisdom conveyed in that, strangely or not, that's something that resonates with a lot of my colleagues across the university. And so, yes, on the side of the university, just trying to think about how we can, I could contribute something to an understanding of Christianity, as well as a sense of what kind of wisdom might be implicit in Christianity and the idea that it's practices as much as anything that convey this kind of wisdom. That's what eventually pushed me in the direction of writing this strange little book. Now, as I said, those practices have to be situated in order to see them as Christian practices. I think they have to be situated within the Christian story, right? So you can't really understand the the way of life that I'm talking about unless you understand it over against a kind of old way of life, what I talk about uh, as the way of the world, or how we're delivered from that, and how we're delivered from sin and bondage, um, mm-hmm. as well as thinking about what the telos is of this mm-hmm. way of life. So, so again, I, I feel like you really do need a kind of systematics in order to situate these practices. But it's a weird one. <laughs> there's not there's not yeah. many like it. I mean, even the style of it is is pretty strange by contrast with some of the usual suspects. Yeah, I,
0: I love that. I love the idea of you're sort of person who's in the pews or a person who's going about a normal everyday Christian life and eating with people or laughing or singing, you know, not necessarily thinking of themselves as doing theology, so to speak, but you're mm-hmm. sort of kind of showing how this, it exists on the scaffolding. Of of that is systematic, um, and in a particular way. I wonder if you could say more about something you said. You mentioned, and, and in your title, you are professor of theology and philosophy of religions, and you know there's mm. some going back and forth in many institutions. Your University of Chicago, but in some Christian institutions, they'll have a, a department of religions. Others will have department of theology. Maybe for our listeners, mm-hmm. could you tease out some of the differences between those disciplines? How do you see those two? um as unique and what does theology in particular contribute that
1: beyond just sort of a department of religions? Wow. That's a big question. One that I feel sort of ill-equipped to answer, even though I mean (laughs) so I teach in a divinity school, but it's it's more like a big department of religion than anything else.
0: Mm.
1: Maybe in the maybe the bigger or trickier question is what does it mean for theology to be part of the study of religion, I mean, I think that's a fraught question everywhere. In some ways, what is the study of religion is a fraught question everywhere.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and in some ways, it's easier to it's easier for me to say just straightforwardly how theology contributes to the university than it is to say how does theology contribute to a particular department of religion. The metaphor I would reach for is to say that if we want, if part of the study of religion is understanding religions, I think theology has something pretty important to contribute to that. Um, The history of the discipline is one that can shed some light on what's going on with particular religions, in, in my case, Christianity. The way I talk about it toward the end of the book is it is not an empirical statement though of what Christianity is. So if you want to understand Christianity, I think you have to understand it normatively and descriptively. And what I'm offering is a, a more of a normative understanding, not in the sense of here's what Christianity, you know, here's what people should be doing, but rather just here are the ideals that Christians hold for themselves. Mm-hmm. Do they fall short of that? Yeah. But to recognize falling short as falling short, you have to have some idea of what you're falling short of. I I one time I used to be a high school football coach, and sometimes we would go. I was I was a freshman B coach. I was not very good at it, but um, but I would sometimes go scout other teams. And one time we scouted a team that was just really, really bad. And it was so bad you couldn't tell what they were trying to do on any given play. Hmm. You could be a bad football team. That at least you can tell what you're trying to do, right? Or you could be so bad that you can't even tell what's really going on. But knowing what somebody's trying to do mm. is a necessary condition for knowing how they're falling short of that, right? And mm. so I think it's important, you know, if you wanna understand a football team's plays, knowing what they actually do empirically matters. And knowing what they're trying to do matters. And so I'm giving you a little bit of the, here's what we're trying to do. And that yeah. I think contributes something to the study of religion. Yeah. So I hope.
0: <laughs> no, that's that's a, a very helpful answer. And it leads to my next question, which is that one of the things that makes it difficult to write an account of what Christianity is trying to do is the diversity of perspectives yeah. in the Christian family yeah. of faith. And that would be the case with any, any community. But uh, you write early in the book that you're trying to hold yourself accountable, this is a quote, accountable to a maximally wide range of Christian perspectives, Catholic, reformational, liberal, post-liberal, liberation, and contextual, to name just a few, end quote. And some of the names that get cited frequently are Calvin, Augustine, James Cone, Karl Barth. Um, So there's at least a Protestant accent uh, to what you're doing here. Um, As you know, our podcast is sort of rooted in this Dutch reform tradition, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it also has a broader range of listeners. And so I wonder if you could say something about as you wrestled with writing a systematic theology that does justice to the broad Christian tradition, what is shared in common, Uh, but we also all work in particular locations and steward Mm -hmm. particular traditions. And I'm wondering if, focusing on practices of faith help with that common ground, even as I also think that, you know, different traditions are going to be open to different things, to different sorts of practices. So how did you sort of navigate um, the breadth of the Christian tradition in trying to articulate,
1: here's what we're trying to do? Yeah, this is so good. And it's, it was, this is one of the things that caused me to lose some sleep. (laughs) So I appreciate you asking about that. Um, Because it it is, it is really difficult, it's impossible to do justice to the full breadth of the tradition, right? So even there's a methodological commitment to holding myself accountable to a really wide range of perspectives, partly because I want to resist the temptation of identifying my perspective with just the way things are. And so I really, I, I take that very seriously. But having said that, there's only so many of these Voices you can take seriously at any given time. And I mean, if I were you, I would have read this book and I would have thought like, oh, that's cool. He's holding himself accountable to a wide range of voices. But I don't see my guys in there. Right. Like, where's where's <laughs> Bobbing? Where's Bobby? Where's, where's, Bobby? where's, yeah. <laughs> where's, the, where's the good yeah. guys? He didn't even talk yeah. about the good yeah. guys. So I did. I mean, so on the you know, like you mentioned some of them, but I some of the figures and documents that have really been sort of benchmarks for a lot of the tradition. I tried to make sure I was consulting with them constantly other times on particular topics. Um certain texts have become really important and so like Kierkegaard on love for instance. Like Kierkegaard is not he's not canonical so to speak for everything, but on love almost everybody who talks about love is going to talk about him at some point, right? So that makes sense. But having said that, like, I feel pretty profoundly how limited the approach is, um, especially because I, I really sort of wanted to keep putting my finger on the scale in certain ways. And I, I did that somewhat, but it's the limitations are, are in some are some ways painful for me. And the fact that maybe I like Endnotes now, it makes the book <laughs> more readable. But it also the yeah. the fact is a lot of those other voices like I I have I cite tons and tons and tons of people, but the experience of reading the book doesn't tell you that unless you're flipping back and forth to the endnotes,
0: which I was doing. Yeah, I had a I had a bookmark mark both parts. Sorry about that. <laughs> yes, <yeah. laughs>
1: um, the uh, with respect to you have a nice sub question here, which is do practices help us with that at all, right? Is it the case that maybe, maybe if we're talking about like the Eucharist and we're talking about it just as a doctrine of real presence or not, right? And what kind of real presence? You almost can't do that without, right? You're picking fights as soon as you say anything. Yeah. Um, but if you talk about, the Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper as a formative practice. And you talk about it, first of all, in terms of the importance of eating together. Well, it does strike me that you at least open up possibilities of a different kind of angle on things, irrespective of somebody's views on real presence. Um, Mm -hmm. Having said that, though, like I talk about prayer and I, I zero in on petitionary prayer. But there's also within dictionary prayer, there's there are varieties of that. There are some are more uh, formal, some less formal. There's also contemplative prayer, which I, I talk about a little bit more under the rubric of wonder and the tension there's. I mean, within practices of prayer, Tonson um, Kido, my Korean friends make fun of me because I mispronounced that, but. But that as a form of prayer, I don't I don't talk about that, but it's one of the most vital aspects of Korean Christianity, right? Studies suggest that that's the thing that second gen Korean Americans are most reluctant to give up out of Korean Christianity. And it's something that is super important. And yet I don't I don't talk about it. Right. So even even when I talk about practices and even formative practices, it doesn't mean that. Mm -hmm. I'm necessarily getting any closer to this, although I do sort of think, I don't know, are there any Christians who don't think we should be looking for the image of God in others? I don't yeah. know. I, mm. I hope that <laughs> I hope not. Uh, are there any Christians who don't think that, you know, like figuring out how do you, how do you love your neighbor that that's really important and we should be focusing on that are there Christians who don't sing? I think, I think almost all Christians sing, not all, but almost all. Mm. Um, so I do think there is something about practice that at least opens up new possibilities for connection, but it's tough. It's it's a it's a tricky issue.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating because it strikes me that there are plenty of places where Christians disagree about doctrines, but they generate similar postures towards the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of what you're identifying here is um, a particular posture towards the world uh, that is embodied in practices and. And, and and in some ways, those things can be shared as common ground, I think, even though the, uh, yeah, the specific understanding is not shared, which sort of leads into my next question is that you're certainly not ignoring belief or experience, you know, other ways that people have sort of understood religion or li- religious faith besides practice. But what? how do you understand the mix of these three things? So you have beliefs, you have practices, you have experiences, and then of course, they all mutually inform each other. But I wonder if you could say more about what's what do you see as the relationship between these three? Um, You know, your systematic theology is unique in that it doesn't focus merely on beliefs, but it talks about practices. How do you see those being related to each other? And then you also write about how these are meant to sort of orient us to the world, so that we perceive ourselves and God and the world and others differently. So how do you see all of that sort of fitting together?
1: I mean, the very short answer is I. I do see them fitting together and they're all they're all. I think the more basic thing is devotion and the more basic Mm -hmm. thing is, yeah, the way of life, the kind of ensemble of practices that are supposed to shape our experience, shape our beliefs, shape our believing, um, shape the way we handle ourselves, the way we interact with others. Right. I think that believing is the way i just put it because i think sometimes doctrines can be sort of inert just as practices can be sort of inert right so if it's just a kind of going through the motions if it's not part of an expression of devotion or a would be expression of devotion if it's not something that one's invested in right those kinds of things i i want to i want to wonder about that right i don't think merely holding a belief, merely assenting to a belief has any kind of magic to it. It doesn't mean that it's, it's shaping our lives at all. I want to get at what is actually shaping our lives. The mere fact that I think my neighbor is created in the image of God doesn't mean I'm going to treat them that way. Um, right. I could believe yes. Yes. I could pass a lie detector test. I believe they are made in the image of God and then go out of my house and treat them like dirt. And so how do we integrate these things? I think, I think in some ways it's something that we have to. I think it's something we have to work at. <laughs> we don't, uh, right? So it's that's part of the message of the book is that it's something that it we takes have to practice. practice. Yeah, it takes we practice. Yeah. Have, yeah, we actually have to practice these things. Mm. Um, and it's and it's often hard, and sometimes it's swimming upstream, and sometimes we need. Help. We usually need help. We need to. We need people we can look up to who can Mm. give us some idea of what it looks like, and we need people who are going to encourage us. And we need like we need we need a lot in order to put these things together so that our lives are of a piece and Mm. and and they would more and more than reflect God's image in our own life. Mm. I do talk about different kinds of experience, right? So I talk about the experience of wonder. And I talk about the experience of gratitude and of wholeness and of a kind of satisfaction. And, and it seems to me that those things, um, there are practices that are meant to help us experience, uh, experience things the right way and have the right kind of experience in the right kind of circumstances, right? Like when good things are in my life, I should feel grateful, right? And, and. And I should be practicing that because I should, there's a lot of good things in my life, but I'm, I'm so tempted to just take them for granted and, and therefore maybe like them, but not experience gratitude. So prayer, I argue, is a practice that helps us experience gratitude in response to gifts. And it's also connected to belief because the belief that God is the giver of all good gifts, the belief that All things finally depend upon God. That's a belief, but it needs to be worked out, among other things, in a practice like prayer that helps us not just hold the belief that God is the creator, but actually live like God is the creator and actually receive Mm. creation as if it's Mm. uh, from God's hand. So uh, that's, right, so I, I, I guess that's one example of how those things hang together. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's hopeful. Yeah, I was sort of thinking my first few questions have sort of been inside baseball of how all this stuff fits together, but I want to get to the practices themselves, which you've already started to allude to. So let's get to some of these practices. And first of all, the two things that um, really stand out to me in this book: first is the clarity of the writing. There's all of these wonderful analogies. I mean, like you've already given on, on this podcast discussion about the football team. Um, I think that you, you really excel at giving these great analogies. The second thing is that the range of Christian practices are not just familiar ones like baptism or confession, but practices like you've mentioned, like eating together and laughing mm. and paying attention. And so I'm going to give you a few of my favorite practices from the book, and I wonder if you could explain them to our listeners. So here's the first one. Yeah. And this is something over which there have been a good number of disagreements in my Reformed tradition the Sabbath. And oh, yeah. uh, so you don't have to address any of those disagreements, <laughs> but you do talk about a practical doctrine of Sabbath. Yeah. And so I wonder if you could talk about that a practical doctrine of Sabbath.
1: Yeah. I initially had thought that I was going to have to step into some of those disagreements and I think they're worthwhile and I'm not just a coward, but as I was working through <laughs> some of the material, it, what really stood out to me was my own experience within immigrant communities and getting to know first gen, second gen immigrants and getting to understand why community was so important to them. And, uh, especially when a lot of immigrants experience themselves as having to work really hard to fit in all the time Mm. and then when they can get together with people from home and they can eat food from home and they can talk their heart language instead of always having to talk in a language other than their heart language often Mm. it was just really important for their sustenance and for their souls and they could experience some respite right they they were having to work at Fitting in all the time, but then they could be with their community and just be, right? And and so I finally oh. it I finally clicked. It probably took way too long, but finally clicked, and it gave me a sense that's what it's I think it should be like when Christians are getting together, and that sense of respite struck me as giving me a sense of what rest could look like, other than just cessation of work. Cessation of work is an important hmm. concept, but but that sense of a kind of taste of home and a kind of um, hmm. being able just to be and to, you know, kind of let down your guard and like that, that struck me. That's why I talk about it as a kind of practical doctrine of the Sabbath, right? Because it's not offering up a doctrine of the Sabbath in terms of... Um, you know, here are the four options for how we understand Sabbath, you know, what day it's on and what you can, and can't do. Like I, right. I respect those disagreements. I understand there's something at stake there, but it was really in, in my experience of the importance of community among yeah immigrants that I was like, Oh, that kind of rest. I want to try to get at that. So that's where that idea of a practical doctrine of the Sabbath came from.
0: Yeah, it's lovely. And I'll just read the line, the line from the book just for, for the listeners so they <laughs> might have a bit of a taste of it. You write, we might arrive at what I would call a practical doctrine of the Sabbath, in which rest cons- consists not so much in a cessation of work as in the respite experienced by exiles when they get together with others from their homeland to practice its customs, sing its songs, eat its foods, and speak its language. Uh, it's just lovely. The second, uh, practice I'd like you to talk about, which actually you've already alluded to is another thing that people fight over. Um, so I'm giving you all of these you know, right. things to handle here, but it's the doctrine of creation. Oh, and yeah. You write about a practical doctrine of creation. So I wonder if you could tell us what you mean by that. What is a practical doctrine of creation? So
1: if someone just has head knowledge or head affirmation that God created the world, um, and maybe even has really good doctrine about it right creation ex nihilo and ideas about providence and concurrence and right you can you can have a really great doctrine of creation and you could write a book about it and then you could stand up from your desk and go about your day as if Everything around you more or less depends upon you. You could take for granted all of the things in the world around you and all of the good gifts in your life. And insofar as you do so, the way you're living is at odds with the idea that God created the world. And so what I was trying to get at by talking about a practical doctrine of creation is how how can we be formed in such a way that... The way we live would actually correspond with our commitment to the idea that God created the world. Mm. The whole earth is filled with God's glory. Suppose we believed that. If we did, we'd be filled with wonder often. Suppose we believed that every good thing we have is from God. We'd be filled with gratitude much more often, right? And so part of the idea with a a practical doctrine of creation is just to try to think about how could we be shaped in such a way that a doctrine of creation wouldn't just be something we could say, but that we'd live.
0: Yeah, I love the sort of reframing of that. You know, you often will have somebody who asks you something like, well, what do you believe about creation? And they're looking for a sort of that first Mm -hmm. category of responses. But it's a very different response to say well, the primary thing we want to say about creation is that we are trying to cultivate cultivate dispositions uh, that treat the world, including ourselves, as the creation of a loving God. You know, that's a very different way in. You know, which doesn't necessarily leave behind you know the mechanics of of interpretation and things like that. But to start with, what do we believe about creation? Mm-hmm. We believe that it is God's good gift to us that mm-hmm. we must and we must treat it as such. Mm-hmm. So I love that. Finally, uh, a third practice, maybe the most important one in the book, one that you've already alluded to, uh, the practice of seeing God's image in others. Mm-hmm. And as you've said, most Christians know that every human bears God's image, but how do we practice seeing God's image? What, is, what does that mean, mm-hmm. uh, to, to practice seeing God's image in others?
1: This is one of the hardest parts of the book for me. Um, both in the sense of trying to think it through, but also in the sense of feeling really challenged by it because looking for the image of God in others is something that I I know that I'm called to do. And yet it's so easy to slip into seeing other people just as in some ways, two dimensional kind of cardboard cutouts or. Seeing, you know, like if, if they bug me, seeing them as just interruptions or if I think they did something bad, seeing them as nothing but that, right, which are all temptations. And so it actually requires a, f- a fair bit of intentional practice to try to focus on it and, and just even remind yourself, remind myself, this person is created to reflect God's goodness right? If God is infinitely good and God's goodness should be reflected in infinitely many ways, expressed in infinitely many ways, each person is meant to be a whole world of that, Mm. whether they know it or not. And so being almost loyal to that in relationship to other people seems like a huge task, but it seems like a really crucial task now having said that there's people there are people who are much much further along with this than i am and so i i do mention that it matters that i'm part of a community where there are people who are really good at this and you'll hear you'll hear the way i'll hear the way these other people will talk about others or treat them the kind of gentleness they exhibit um the forbearance they exhibit the The way that they will encourage any kind of goodness they see in others and appreciate it—that's that's that's something that spurs me on to try to be more like that and gives me a lets me uh, holds me accountable to it, right? So there's a way of wanting to let myself off the hook, Mm. like, well, this is really hard, so I'm doing okay, right? It's like, no, (laughs) no, not not compared to Mm. that person, Mm. but it's, Mm. yeah, I mean. We can make a difference, though. And I think we know this because so we see somebody do something, right? They cut us off or they say something kind of rude or it seems kind of condescending. What they did is what they did. But how we interpret it and the kind of background we, we interpret it against, the kind of framework we interpret it within can make a huge difference, right? And we can have a more compassionate or a less compassionate way of understanding them, a more or less understanding way of understanding them. And even if the best we can do is say like, yeah, you know, like sometimes people are just condescending or rude or mean-spirited or whatever, but even that isn't the final word about them and resisting, resisting that, resisting the idea of just writing people off. That takes a lot of work. So, yeah, that was that was and is a really challenging part of the book for me.
0: Yeah, and I want to ask a bit about why why we fail mm. to do that. Mm. This do- doctrine of the image of God is so central to mm. the Christian view of things, and yet we so consistently fail to treat people as image bearers. And uh, you mentioned in the book the challenge of someone like Lauren Winner, who wrote this book, the dangers yeah. of Christian practice, um, in which she sort of shows how Christian practices have been deformative um, in characteristic ways. One of the most notable examples: slaveholding Christians who have nevertheless nevertheless maintained a consistent life of prayer. And her point is, I think, something that no one would disagree with: that there's no such thing as pristine Christian practice. Mm-hmm. They're always damaged gifts that. Represent our cultural pathologies, but I wonder how you respond, how you process that that, that caution that our best practices uh, not only fail to succeed, but succeed in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and why do we fail? Why do our theologies and Christian ways of life sometimes more nearly resemble the way of the world um, rather than the way of um, the way of Jesus?
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a really important challenge. And it's in some ways something that I would want us, um, I don't think you can, I don't think you can respond to that challenge by writing. I think you have to respond to that challenge by, I don't know, worrying as a spiritual practice. Um, <laughs> I have that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm great at this one. Uh, <laughs> but it does strike me that we are always liable to get things wrong and to um distort the things that god has given us or to hold on to them in the wrong way right like even if i even if my prayer practice is exemplary if i then hold that over the heads of others or suggest that they need to do it my way or judge them against me even just at that level, it's already a distortion of some gift that God has given me. Not to mention the ways in which um, Christian practices can get bent in the direction of doing a kind of work for us and our agendas and serving the status quo and serving our biases—all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I I talk pretty early on that this is it's always going to be repentance in this life and that includes these practices. Having said that, I don't I don't general I don't think that in general it's the case that there's a kind of irredeemability in these practices themselves such that it still makes sense to talk about them and how we should be doing them and toward what end. But we can do that mindful of the fact that just because we say, ah, yes, when we do these things, it's for this. Let's not kid ourselves and just assume that it's magic that they're doing those things. I think, we should actually, right. I think we should actually hold ourselves accountable, right? Like, are we kidding ourselves? Are we really doing the things that we say we're doing? Or, are, you know, like, you, you look at um, the way eating together got practiced in the early church, and uh, evidently, really early on, it became a practice of, exclusion of some people and those who had more than enough in some ways being insensitive to or even lording it over those who didn't have anything right and so it's the idea that these practices just in virtue of like oh well if it's a practice then it's good well no obviously not right, right? Yeah. i think i think that's <laughs> i think i think lauren winner and i are on the same page about that
0: well so that we can end maybe with a bit more hope um, your book does end with this chapter, The End, and that works in multiple ways uh, to get at both the goal, but then also uh, our ultimate hope. Uh-huh. And, and so as you arrived at the end of this project, I wonder how you would answer the question, what may we hope, especially for Christians who are practicing, exercising um, these, uh, these uh, practices and, and seeking to live this way of life, which is distinct from the way of the world.
1: What may we hope? Mm. We can grow in our hope that God is going to keep all of God's promises. We can grow in our hope for the fulfillment of all of our desires at their deepest level, even if not in the way we hold them, but in some deepest uh, sense, all of our desires are desires for God's goodness. But in the meantime, hopes we can hope to grow in devotion to God, right? And so I think um, the most fundamental thing is wanting to grow in one's love for God with all one's heart and mind and soul and Mm strength. And we can hope that we will actually grow in those things, knowing that we will never sort of be done in this life. But we can hope for that. And hope includes not just kind of a hopeful attitude, but also trying to move in that direction, incorporating that into our agency. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think practices are one component of that. We can build up routines that would move us in the direction of that hope. Mm -hmm. Um, My hope is that this book, if people read it, it's received as sort of part of a conversation rather than i a, a, I'm not attempting to give any kind of final word about anything. And so if people read this and they think, I'm not sure I agree with that. And, oh, that's interesting. I've never thought of that that way. And, oh, cool. Maybe that's, maybe that's how I'll think about it. Like any one of those is a, something I'd be happy with. But, but again, I do feel like this is, more my attempt to be part of a conversation, almost a collaboration um, with readers than like me giving a definitive treatment of anything. It's just not that kind of book. So in that spirit, I'm grateful for you doing exactly what I most hoped for with the book, Mm -hmm. which is having a conversation about it.
0: Well, we really enjoyed it. Our guest has been Kevin Hector. His book is Christianity as a Way of Life, a Systematic Theology by Yale University Press. Kevin, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm deeply grateful. Thanks for listening to to the In All Things podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content helpful, please help us out by leaving a review or sharing with others. You may have noticed that we've been including original music from our friends, the Ruralists, on each episode of the season, something related to the theme of the episode. This week we close with a song about a resolution to particular practices. Less preaching and more prayer, more tenderness and care, less judgment and more love, less worry about stuff. Feel free to turn the dial or stay with us while the Ruralists sing us out with a song before we know from the album, Trying.
2: Maybe this year will be different I'll be wise enough to know Just let go of all the things I cannot change And I'll finally find a way to Just sit still and pass the time Reminded of what's lovely and strange Like we January dawn or oh, that woodpecker I saw, or the buds bursting from trees, which soon would turn to leaves till time again next fall. When the trees will drop them all for me.